You're now listening to Fintech Confidential, bringing you the people, tech, and companies that change how you pay and get paid. Be sure to subscribe to Fintech Confidential on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast player by going to podcast.fintechconfidential.com and sign up for Fintech Confidential information at access.fintechconfidential.com. All right, Daryl. So happy to have you on today. It's been, you, you and I have known each other for quite some time and it, uh, we're finally getting to it. Stoked about this one ever since you reached out. Obviously, lots and lots of water under the bridge between uh, you and me, and super excited to geek out on some fintech stuff and dive in. Definitely. One of the things that, that every time you and I sit down and we chat, it, it's really interesting because I walk away looking at the e commerce space and business in general in a completely different way. And I think of that has a lot to do with the fact that you've been an entrepreneur most of your, if not all of your adult life. And you would come to FinTech with a slightly different perspective. How did you get into the FinTech arena? And what was it that, that made you want to start FlexPay? Yeah. So yeah, definitely a serial. I'm one of those, one of those punks who never went to a single day of school beyond high school and got straight out. And my first business was actually washing windows. So my dad had a commercial cleaning business. Nice. I was from the East coast of Canada, very blue collar, working class sort of community. But one of the greatest things that ever happened to me was my parents had a good year of business and the accountant told them, Hey, you need some more write-offs. And so they bought a computer for the office. <laughs> it was like a 286 with a 40 meg hard drive and it had a five and a quarter floppy and the three and a half floppy drive. And it was like absolute cutting edge, the best of the best at the time. And yeah, I just really started getting deep into computers and teaching myself how to code and it was a bit of a nerd and just reading through, there was no user-friendly stuff back then. It was like these 600 page books, this thick, you just had to go through a bit by, but yeah, just getting exposed to computers and tech at a really young age and being really curious about it. I've always been really passionate about optimization and efficiency. And I knew that I wanted to get into tech at some point. So I started out when I was 20, I guess I was 23 when I started my first business in IT networks were just becoming a thing. So I started doing like, you know, all these local area networks and uh, the internet was just coming of age at that time. It was mid nineties. And so I was like one of the early adopters on the internet with all these 14.4 odd modems and all that kind of jazz. It was super, super interesting time, but uh, just being in the right place at the right time with a pension for systems thinking and having a good network of people, very lucky give you the, the short version of the story, but next thing I knew, I wound up in the Twin Towers in New York, working on some pretty sophisticated cybersecurity and network infrastructure stuff with Sprint. And met an incredible group of coders, developers, and business people. And that led me to landing a few other contracts up and down the Eastern seaboard, mostly with telcos. And one of my clients had this incredible e-commerce business. It's like monthly recurring subscriptions. And I was like, man, I love your business way more than mine. Like these self-filling bank accounts, the annuity business, it's just, it's just awesome. So he had some blind spots in his business and I convinced him I was a good fit for it. I could become like the tech geek in his back pocket, kind of his trip, I had to guide him through that whole world. And we launched up a bunch of businesses together. So I just had, again, really great co-founders, mentors who helped me. I was always in the back office on operations and tech, a little bit of finance. And we used to go to trade shows and I talked to people, friendly competitors, and I'd be like, 
talking about unit economics, like gross margin, lifetime value, decline rates, chargebacks. And guys would say, man, we're buying customers from all the same online sources that you are. And we don't get numbers anywhere near this good. What do you know that we don't? And that helped me to understand that we had the secret sauce. All of our businesses were organically funded, uh, bootstrapped, and we were competing uh, with big uh, publicly funded companies that uh, publicly traded companies with very deep pockets. And so we had no choice but to just generate more profit and more revenue per unit that we were able to acquire. I mean, it was my job to make sure that we were as efficient as possible in doing. So that led to me creating a third party administration business, I had an amicable parting of the ways with my co-founders in 2011. And that led to me, you know, creating a third party administration business where I'd go out to these like big brands and mostly in the US and say, Hey, we will take over all of the administration of your business, everything. We have our own billing platforms. We have our own customer service. We have built a 225 seat call center open 24 seven. And so we're just going to take care of everything for you on the back end. And we'll only charge you if you make more money with less. And it was a very profitable business. It was great. We had this huge incentive baked into the DNA of the organization to build tools that would optimize recurring billing. And again, it was all proprietary tax dealing with, again, big publicly traded companies. So they're very used to like Sarbanes, Oxley and uh, Visa DSS certification and level one PCI and like all the stuff that's just like hair up with it. I'm really grateful that we learned a lot of those lessons early on. And the first version of FlexPay was really like one of our internal use secret sauce tools that allowed us to have an edge else because you especially if you think about recurring billing subscriptions like everything's a subscription right nobody even buys a license of adobe photoshop anymore you sign up for an annual subscription with adobe uh, like everything's turned into a subscription but we were really early into subscriptions so just like early into computers early into subscriptions starting in, in 2001 in the subscription space and there's really only two ways you lose customers once they sign up to something on a recurring basis either they call you up or email you to say they don't want the product or service anymore or you just can't build them anymore the involuntary chair, which is mostly driven by failed payments. And it got to the point where 60% of all of our churn was coming from the failed payments. So I'm like, wow, this is where I have to focus on my time and energy. And being the tech geek coming from the background of network infrastructure, network architecture, analyzing, looking for single points of bail and having some pretty deep relationships in the payments world by that point, we really learned a lot about what drives failed payments and why and what you can do about it. At first, we were, I remember in the early 2000s, we we're like, oh, maybe we're just tapped into a subprime demographic. Maybe it's the economy. Maybe we're going in through a recession or coming up. But no, it's actually, there's something else going on. Like 80, I think it's 83% of all the declines, all the failed payments that card not present and recurring subscription companies have are not legitimate declines. They're false declines where there's some sort of friction in the ecosystem, usually initially bank. Let's try to keep fraud off of their own balance sheet. Well, the numbers from MasterCard in 2020, I think it was 35 billion in losses, fraud losses that the issuing banks had to handle for which they are insured, but their deductibles are going up, their premiums are going up and they get to decide which transactions get approved or declined. And so they prize act a lot of times in a very self-interested manner. The vendors that they rely upon think that they're doing the right thing for their customers, the issuers, by helping them scrub out more fraud and you get it wrong. You just, you just started to, you just started to pull back some of the curtain. And, and yeah. it's funny because accepting payments has always been overly complex. You're diving into the complexity of it and really a mystery for most e-commerce businesses. And in the past couple of years, the subscription economy has just 
exploded. It's gone into hyperdrive, not even explosion anymore. It's in full hyperdrive. What are you seeing is the number one thing that businesses can do to really gain a level of transparency into this complex process that enables them to reduce the risk while providing the best possible products and services to what their customers want. I love you. It's a really important word there, Ted. Thanks for the tee up. Transparency. <laughs> Transparency is key, right? And if you look at ultimately the journey that I'm on, Flexbase, my seventh business now, I just got so frustrated in some of my earlier businesses with all of this pain that I was having from losing all these customers. Super frustrated to find out that it's from most of it is for no good reason. That we're just looking at serious inefficiencies in the existing payments ecosystem. Yeah, I got really passionate about saying, we're going to get in there. We're going to do something about this. We're going to fix it. And the solution ultimately, like the mission that I'm on, what really matters to me is improving, increasing trust and transparency in the payment ecosystem. See, right now, merchants pay for what FlexPay does. But ultimately, if we do our job, everybody benefits. Because like I said, it's a seven to one false decline ratio is the average in America right now. It's slightly better in Canada. It's about a six to one in the UK. It's about a seven to one in Australia as well. Like this is a problem that's pretty ubiquitous across all the different geos that are out there. Focus mostly on the US market right now for a few different reasons, which we can talk about later. But ultimately, if we, if merchants, here's one other way of looking at it. Merchants will always know more about the risk profile of a given transaction, the IP address, device ID, email address, the shipping address, all these different things, the shopping cart contents that are all these things that are directly relevant to the fraud profile of a transaction. The merchant will always know more about that than anyone else, but the issuer, the bank that issues the credit card or debit card will always know more about the customer and the risk profile of the customer. The issuer is the one making the decision on what gets approved or declined. This is really important, right? A lot of people think Visa and MasterCard decide which transactions get approved or declined. No, they don't. Uh, the acquirer, the merchant processor, the gateway, the merchant. Merchants might scrub a few transactions that they think are fraudulent before they even try to process it. We're talking about stuff that enters the payment ecosystem. It's ultimately the issuer. It's the name of the bank on the piece of plastic that decides whether or not it's going to be approved or more technically accurately, the issuing processor that they use and the software tools inside of the issuing processor. Processors are like FIS, Pfizer, TSIS. We had a little bit of Jack Henry coming in and doing some consulting on it. These are the systems that are ultimately deciding what's going to get approved or deployed, but they, they are missing information, missing tons of information. And they have to make a decision super quickly, super tight SLAs, like they have to make a decision or approve or decline in order to be compliant with these standards for processing transactions in milliseconds. So they can't really leverage machine learning or AI in production. These really great cutting edge tools that we have, they have to use, they have to rely on rules-based things. So they can use AI in the lab, but then ultimately that creates rules, uh, static rules that they use at the decisions. They're acting in a self-interested manner, trying to optimize for getting fraud into the ecosystem. They can't decline too many transactions or they irritate their customers and create churn. But ultimately, if it comes down to taking the hit on their own balance sheet on fraud losses, or maybe just creating a little bit of more friction for their customers, they usually, most banks will usually decide in favor of protecting their own P&L. This is why 3D Secure was supposed to be so cool, right? so amazing. <laughs> 3D Secure, oh, to the goodness. First meaningful upgrade to the payment network since 1987. 
And we're like, oh, this is exactly what we need. More trust and transparency, get more data in. So you and I have talked about this before, Ted. What has happened in America since 3D Secure got rolled out? Are approvals going up or approvals going down? Oh my gosh, they've gone down. The, the, the approvals have gone down so much since that rollout happened. And you actually hit on something <laughs> that I wanted to talk about. You know, getting more approvals and going back through that process, you hinted towards it, but I think it's important. Is like, how do you like, how do you figure out like the pieces of data that are missing or the pieces of the data? How, how do you identify it? How do you resolve it? How do you move forward with it? Because data is great, but data is only data unless you know how to take action on it. How are you guys, how is FlexPay looking at that data differently than, than say, the guy who's set up on on Shopify? Yeah, it's a great question. So look, if you, once you understand what's actually happening, once you understand why payments are failing, and once you understand that the vast preponderance of those field payments are friction, like false declines, false positives that should not be in the ecosystem, then you can start to say, how am I going to solve for this? And you start to realize that you need a lot of data and you need really deep relationships with the issuers. Now, this is one of the things where we've been very fortunate, again, having been in e-commerce at scale, processing hundreds of millions, billions of dollars in transactions at this point, we had some pretty deep relationships with a lot of the issuers. And it turns out that they also would like to see a better solution. Some of them, if you find the right ones, which is another thing that we've been really good at is having conversations with the issuers that actually care about this and the issuing processors who care about this and want to do better. And we developed relationships with a few of them and started sharing data with us. I think we're, we're several billion transactions now of data that we received from issue. It's super interesting because what FlexPay does, if you go on our website and you talk to us, it's the work for merchants, right? But actually we're not for merchants, we're for the payment ecosystem and creating trust and transparency and making sure that all the stakeholders benefit. And now that we know that there's 8,000 issuers in America, all making decisions independently of one another as to what transactions they're going to approve or decline. You start to understand the scope and scale of the problem. You say, well, I need data from over here. So getting data from the fraud tools, getting data from the acquirers, the acquirer data, getting data from the issuers, the juxtaposition of those three sources of data, you start and then running machine learning on top of it. You start to understand, okay, this is what's going on. And then even just having frank conversations with the heads of risk at a lot of these issues saying, this is how we look at risk. And this is how we look at our systems. And here's the motivations that Here's how seasonal cycles affected. And when it's time for us to renew our insurance policies, we have, we start to dial up the decline. This is why it used to make me absolutely crazy that I'd have someone signed up to one of my subscriptions and they charged me for 14 months in a row, no problem. And the card is not expired. The account is not closed. And then suddenly on month 15, I get a do not honor decline code. And you can reach on three times and then it goes three. It's like, what just happened there? Like, how did that happen? What does do not honor even really mean? Which by the way, pull back the kimono, uh, the, the curtain a little bit here, right? About 95% of all do not honor is a fraud system. That means it's not a hundred percent, but if you get do not honor error codes, and if you see an increase in do not honor decoin codes on your business as a merchant, usually means that maybe you got hit by a fraud rating or for some reason, the issuers in their systems are starting to think that you're a high risk merchant and they're declining more of your transactions. They're more sensitive 
to you. And what we find is that these systems within the issuers are very quick to respond to risk and very slow to pull back. So you'll see somebody get hit by a fraud ring. This happened to a friend of mine, a really large merchant, world-class marketer and merchant, high-quality products and services, but he hit by a fraud ring. And his fraud systems didn't catch it right away on the front end, the tools that he was using. And so he ended up with all of these chargebacks, all these problems as a merchant, which he had a great relationship with his bank and they were willing to work through it. But then all of a sudden he's stuck in this hell of all these declines that he never had before. His decline rates went up at 30, 40%. It used to be like 10, 12%. And now he's 16, 17%. And he's like, what the heck is going on? And I'm just, all my profit margins getting lost in this. And it was all in do not order. So I'm like, and so we actually went to the issuers and pulled all the data out and looked at the three-digit risk score that they put on each individual transaction and said, yeah, look at that. Your risk scores have on average doubled and they're slowly improving time. But like within 30 days, there was a massive spike in average fraud rate ranking on these transactions at the issuers. But it was six months later, it still wasn't only, it was like, huh. and like, you know, say it was here and I went to here. He'd only, after six months, pull that up half, and he was only had problems with the fraud ring for a few weeks. So this is like part of what's going on inside of the system. And we talked about 3D Secure earlier, and I geeked out about this a little bit. Here, this amazing thing that was supposed to massively improve approval rates by giving more data to the issuers because of the way that it was rolled out in the U.S. It's actually had the opposite effect. And well, this is recorded, so we're not going to name names, but <laughs> really large merchants that pretty much, yeah. I think like 80% of Americans are subscribed to like this one particular really large merchant, a video streaming service who shall remain nameless. And they will be secure. What's that? And, and, and so, so, so you bring up something that, that is important as we start to think about this is like getting past, and you mentioned earlier, trying it two or three times, you've talked about going back through and, and, and when that's do not honor, they're always going to be, you know, the account closed one is the one that is like the death spike, but a lot of the other ones can give you a little bit of hope, but we moved into the next thing is when you get hit by a fraud ring or when you get perceived as fraud, does the higher risk merchant. Yeah. Yeah, a high-risk merchant, does the process of retrying increase that visibility into potential seen as a higher-risk We have really good data on that. Uh, directly from the issuers, the issuers are like, why is this merchant retrying this so many times? We told them no, go away, stop, and they call it hammering, right? Hammering declines. Like the worst possible thing, I was talking about a couple of merchants the other day. Yeah, we take all of our soft declines. Soft declines is like NSF. Bank decline, do not honor, stuff like that. We see all of our self declines and we retry them every day for 60 days. I'm like, how's that working out for you? What happened? Wow. What happened to your approval rate on fresh attempts? Uh, it, I, I'm guessing it plummeted. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. They doubled their decline rates, doubled their decline rates by doing that. So, this is because the more you hammer away at declines, even soft declines, the more your reputation with the issuers is starting to be affected. So if you live in a world where, first of all, you can't do nothing with all these scale payments, you have to do something as a merchant, all of your profit ends up getting tied up in these. But if you understand that you live in a world where you have a finite number of retries to be able to get this transaction pushed back through, then you understand that you need to be as precise and as intelligent as possible 
when you do retry it to make sure that you're doing something meaningful and you write a glossed over that, what are some of the low hanging things <laughs> that you can do right now? Right? So along with it is what I tell people is the, the most sophisticated way to handle this is what we do at FlexPay, right? Using AI to analyze each transaction at the individual level and come up with a custom craft of strategy for that transaction based on all the different data fields that we can scrape together on, on that transaction. But if we want to go broad strokes, blunt instrument, make sure that you're batching your subscription transaction during the day, business hours, ideally early afternoon, East coast time. We definitely see trends where there's one particular issue in America, a really large one where all things being equal. Uh, failed payments are double at 2 a.m. what they are at 2 p.m. Is that the infomercial type, like impact? Is that kind of the thought process to have you no know, idea? Somebody in their infinite wisdom at this issue or decided that if a transaction is running in the middle of the night, it must be higher risk. Maybe they think that it's like some cyber hacker from over in Russia or overseas somewhere. Who knows? They probably have really good data that shows that transactions running through card not present in the middle of the night are higher risk transactions, right? Now that doesn't apply to all issuers, but again, we're going blunt instrument here, right? Generally speaking, mm-hmm. retroid transactions on Fridays and Saturdays, right? For soft declines, trying them around the 1st and the 15th, trying to match up with what payday goes through. That helps with NSF. Understanding what MCC you're in, your merchant category code. Most merchants don't even know what an MCC is, but it's one of the most important indicators on how your transactions are going to be treated by the issuers and the level of risk they assume are on your transactions, especially if you're a merchant who's doing say under 300 million a year in process, the systems that the issuers aren't going to be able to create custom models to really understand how to improve the performance of your transactions over time. So you just end up getting cast into these large buckets and the rules on the bucket apply more than the rules that you get treated on as an individual merchant. Amazon and Google and Microsoft don't seem to have this problem anyway much. There's plenty of other merchants who do, they really, they had that, like the FCC that you're in, which is a four digit number that is assigned by your merchant bank when you open your account. And a lot of merchants don't even know what their MCC is. They just the straight on what my MCC is going to be. And they just automatically yeah. put me in that bucket. Next thing you know, I'm ending up with all these declines I shouldn't have. Right? And I'd say another one is data fields, looking really carefully at data validation, uh, like removing special characters from name and address fields. Uh, play around with zip plus four versus not using zip plus four play around with, should I use the recurring flag or not using the recurring flag? How does that affect my approvals by issuer? Now I'm starting to get a little bit more into the niches, but you know, you have the niches or 3d secure, right? What does it make sense for me to use 3d secure to? What does it not make sense for me? Unfortunately, I, and I'm really sad about this. I mean, you'd think that if there's more failed payments, I should be happy as the CEO of FlexPay because more business for me, right? But. No, I actually just want to see this problem get fixed. And of course I want to be a big part of the solution to it, but I was really excited about 3D Secure. I thought maybe this is something that we're even going to be able to leverage. And unfortunately it's having completely the opposite effect. So you get even these really large merchants who spent like hundreds of thousands of dollars and tons of dev cycles to roll out 3D Secure 2 across their entire book. And they ended up turning it all off and rolling it back. And now what we're seeing is a lot of large merchants, they only use 3D Secure for 3% of all their transactions. Well, Ted. What 3% do you think they're going to use for 3D Secure? The riskiest 3%, yes. right? Because 3D Secure is about getting a liability shift, right? So it's like, I'll take the, the higher approval rate on the 97% and I'll take a hit on approval rate on this 3%, but it's really like 3% of the worst of my 
customers who I don't want to say no to, but I know that there's a problem here and they're high risk and I'll just send them through with 3D Secure. And so then the issuers are like, what the heck? Every time I see 3D Secure, it's like this super high risk stuff and I don't want this additional liability. So we're just going to, and, and they have, what's really interesting is that you talk to the average person in the banking system. This is why it's really important to have conversations directly with the heads of risk rather than just reading what you see online and reading the policies and, and the party line from Visa and MasterCard. Like, Visa and MasterCard have SLAs that they impose on the issuers how many transactions they're supposed to approve or decline on 3D Secure. They can validate and say, yes, 3D Secure accepted, and then decline the transaction through the regular authorization stream afterwards and say it was for other reasons. Internal decisions, underwriting, security, and it's very black box. They don't have to tell Visa and MasterCard why they declined it. Oh, yeah, 3D Secure approved, but authorization stream declined. And what gets gets even more interesting once you go beyond that perspective is the way that, so (laughs) it's funny because it's supposed to shift the liability from the merchant all the way over to the issuer for the issuer to validate that cardholder is the cardholder. What has started to happen is a lot of merchants are saying, I'm going to authenticate every single transaction. And they get the authentication of that transaction for 3D Secure 2.0. But then the cardholder issues a chargeback. And if that chargeback ratio on 3D Secure authenticated transactions for that particular financial institution get to a certain point. We don't know what that point is, but when it gets to a certain point, they go, oh, wait a second. We didn't say we were going to take liability on all of these transactions. So then they go and they knock on the door of the card brand. Then the card brand goes and knocks on the door of the acquiring bank, which then goes down to their sales channels and Mm -hmm. says, hey, so can you quit using 3D Secure? Because the issuers over here, they're a little upset that they're having to take liability for so many of these things. Yep. And, no, and it's exactly just, it's, it. it's crazy. And that's, and that's after it's been approved, Ted, like you were talking about. That's after yeah. it's been approved. Are right? you talking about chargebacks after the fact? Well, what I'm seeing is that in the, before the transaction even gets approved, when it's free, secure, authenticated, we're seeing significantly lower approval rates. It's on those transactions when they go through the primary authorization stream after the three secure authentication. So it's really disappointing. This is a large, complicated problem with multiple players with conflicting agendas. And part of the challenge here is that anything to do with changing the payment ecosystem, especially in America, is literally like turning the Titanic. There's a reason (laughs) why the little chip that we have in our cards, like Uganda had that for 13 years before America. And there's other reasons why. There's like lobbying, politics, and money, and all kinds of other stuff going on between it. But still, it's really hard to get things changed, especially when you don't want to start messing in the authorization stream. So that the problem, you can start to see the problem. Just because you understand what the problem is doesn't mean that you can automatically get in and solve it. So we're working on some really interesting pilot projects. Right now, what we do is we get all this data. We understand the motivations of the players. We get a lot of the data from the issuers where they share with us open kimono. We only represent the good merchants, which is another thing too. Like in our tech, one thing that makes us different from some of the other vendors who like do dunning and stuff is that we will deliberately not try to recover some transactions that we have a high suspicion 
are not legitimate. So I swear you're reading my notes over here is because I was like, so how do you know when to attempt a recovery? What, like, when do you know when to attempt? And obviously you talked about the guys who are doing it completely wrong and we're hitting the account every day for 60 days. You just mentioned some other folks who are using some standardized dunning. How do you know? <laughs> how do you know when to actually try that recovery? Some of that is. And, and you know, you don't, you don't have to. Don't know, but I've, given, I've given a lot of it. I've given a lot of the answers here. And a lot of the answers are, first of all, having really deep conversations with the issuers and the issuing processors and looking really closely at the software systems that are making decisions receiving billions and billions of transactions, a lot of billions of uh, transactions out of the issuing processing systems and the software systems that are making the decisions, uh, getting the three digit risk scores, analyzing those, being able to understand what's working, what's not. And you don't get to receive all that data and form those relationships if you're a bad actor who's trying to push through illegitimate transactions. And this is another one of the problems that we see in the ecosystem is that it's not just issuers that are acting in a self-interested manner. You get all these people with, when there's a lack of transparency, you get all kinds of people acting in a self-interested manner. You get bad actors all over the place. There's bad actor cart holders who are signing up for things that they don't actually want just so they can get an incentive and they're using chargeback as a way to cancel out of a product and fraudsters abusing the system or like a little bit of friendly fraud. Swear, dude, you, you, you've got to be reading my notes because my next one was, does this whole process really start to increase like the fraud? How, do, how does this play into the fraud side of the house? So oh, I'll let you, you keep going, man, but it's funny because you're going down my list here. Merchants are acting in a very self-interested manner where they're like, I want to run a bunch of transactions on customers that I know I really shouldn't be billing, or maybe I don't have the right to bill, or I'm going to use quasi nefarious things like force capture to try to push through transactions that I have no business pushing through illegitimate transactions, just trying to boost up their profit margins. You've got acquirers acting in a very self-interested manner. In a lot of ways you get the networks acting in a self-interested manner, and then you get the issuers and it's acting in a self-interested manner. Issues like we're trying to reduce fraud losses and stuff like that. And, and this is the problem. If we just had everybody operating in, in a more transparent manner, okay, you would lose the advantage, advantage of being able to act in a self-interested manner. And that's not to the benefit of the ecosystem as a whole, but that, that everybody would win. Everyone would do better. So it turns out today, merchants are willing to pay for that service. So that's, you know, our primary source of revenue where we say, some of these transactions are not legitimate. We have machine learning models that we train on them. And we're like, these are, these are bad transactions. It might be a good customer, but it's not going to be, it's not going to be a good outcome for us to retry this into the high likelihood of refund, a high likelihood of chargeback. Just, it looks suspicious for all kinds of reasons. And we're layering the census data. We get these data feeds from the issuers. We're looking at the fraud systems. We're looking at acquired data and we've got all these data streams. And we're like, okay, things that look like this tend to be like that. And we're getting more and more accurate with it all the time. The ones that we do think are legitimate, we can start to get a little bit more aggressive and a little bit more creative. And again, knowing why the declines are happening in the first place and what's going on inside of the risk systems that are ultimately responsible for declining those transactions helps a lot. So now if you are living in a world of finite retries where you can't just hammer on declines, you say, these ones are worth trying harder on. These ones I might try once or twice and let them go. I'll layer in my account updater. I'll layer in these other data cleanup things and that, that Overall, I can massively increase my recovery on all these failed payments while simultaneously reducing my attempts. That's the sweet spot. That's the magic. And then what we find is that when we do a really good job for a merchant, they end up with 
higher approval rates, which is what they're paying us for ultimately, make me more money on this bucket of pain that I have, but also fewer retries, fewer refunds, and fewer chargebacks than if they were just using a rules-based system. So it's like a four, it's four massive wins all combined. And this again, only happens when you are acting in a very ethical, informed manner where you've got multiple stakeholders coming in. We're just getting started. The more we can have conversations, the more we can have technical integrations into the issuers doing free offs, kind of the way 3D Secure was supposed to work, but without the liability, I think we'll, we'll be able to really eat away at this problem. We're talking a big problem here. Before COVID, it was 400 billion a year in false declines. That's 35 billion in fraud losses for the issuers, but 100 billion for the, for the merchants in one year alone, only in the U S and since COVID, it's just skyrocketed. Every brick and mortar is going to them so much and e-com subscription, everything is just mushroomed during, uh, during the pandemic. And so you've got all this complexity that's come in with all these new devices and all this digital and the wallets and all this other stuff, but you have all this additional complexity. It's coming in so quickly and you have these antiquated rails that just can't keep up with it all. And so the problem just keeps stacking, getting bigger and thus the need for it. It's insane that flex space should even be necessary. Honestly, if everything was really on blockchain, for example, I knew you were going to get a lot of conversation for another, <laughs> but nobody yeah. like trust and transparency, right? This is what's required and it's not an easy thing to solve, but that's the real problem. That's really the underpinnings of why we have all this pain, why merchants are going through all this pain. And again, I didn't know all this when I first got started. And the day that I found out and started having these conversations, oh my goodness, like the scales falling off my eyes. Oh, you mean there's something I could do about this? So you asked earlier, what are some of the things we should do? I think first of all, is yeah, I'm on a mission to create awareness and saying, hey, Mr. Merchant, who has all this pain from failed payments, you don't have to be in pain. There is actually something you could do about it. So know that it's a solvable problem. Measure it. Like actually go and measure how much you're losing in false declines because Peter Drucker 101, what gets measured gets managed, right? Once you're measuring it, then you can say, well, let's do an audit of what are we actually doing about this problem and how well is that working? And then you can start to get creative around, there's this new category of business that's emerging, payment authorization management, which I'm super passionate about. This is where FlexPay fits as well. We're in payment authorization management and it, it's a really important, uh, set of tools that can help you to solve this problem. So once you're aware, you can do something about it. You start to measure the problem and you're looking at the tools and you can say, well, what are the other tools that exist within PAM payment authorization management to help me do an even better job to manage around this? And then you can start to iterate, right? Let's try this. Let's try that layer in better strategies, layering in AI, whenever you can, there's really great AI tools, even for, um, the uh, voluntary term piece of it, or for digital engagement texting and emailing and using AI for that. Some really cool tools that I'm keeping an eye on that I'm really excited about and that we're partnering with. So yeah, there's some fun, there's some fun stuff happening for sure. So I know you said earlier that you're focused on the U S market. Why did you choose the U S market when this is a global problem? Uh, great question. A lot of it boils down to where we had relationships, like how do you as a fintech startup, get billions of transactions from issuers, including the risk scores on them. Not trivial, right? Not an easy thing. Well, just because we've been 20 plus years in payments 
as a merchant and as a technology vendor and certified with Visa and try to be a, a really good actor in that space and building a good reputation for ourselves. We have really good relationships there. So getting all the data and then really being able to refine machine learning algorithms around that data that helps to improve it gives a big leg up. But we have been testing those same algos on UK traffic. I was pleasantly surprised to see that they perform just as well, if not even better on the UK traffic. So that's super exciting for Interesting. a nice expansion market for us. Uh, but the other reason is that it's focus, right? You have to start somewhere. This is a really nice big economy. And because we had so many relationships already, we had all these integrations into platforms, integrations into gateways and acquirers, integrations, relationships on the issuing side. So uh, it made it easier for us to start there, but definitely we're just getting started when it comes to the geos. So last but not least, you mentioned that that big companies have been doing this for a while. And now with, with so many people and so many different areas of subscription, e-commerce, shoot, <laughs> just about everything is done on the subscription anymore or some sort of recurring uh, process, right? How big does a company need to be before they should start looking at recovering? Is there like a metric they need to be looking at that goes, now I need to really be serious and look at this? Yeah, it's a great question. Ted. The answer is every merchant has this problem, right? The large, the really large merchants have less of the problem. And they're also more sophisticated in their approach, but every merchant who's in card not present in subscriptions has this problem. The reality is that you don't pay your bills with percentages. You pay them with dollars and cents. So if you say to a really small merchant who's just getting started, Hey, I can recover 50% of all your failed payments. They only have a thousand dollars a month in failed payments. It's not going to really move the needle for them. There's other solutions out there that are good enough dunning solutions that kind of just set it and forget it. And we go and pin off. We have plenty of merchants who are super small using our tech, but it was because our tech was already integrated into the platform that they're on. Mm -hmm. So they have this billing platform that they're in. And because the billing platform is integrated to FlexPay, it's literally like a super painless flip of the switch. They can turn it on. The larger merchants who tend to be on like some sort of a custom in-ground, like in-house system, own system. They have to do an integration into our APIs. I mean, yeah. these failed payments, how are you going to send them to FlexPay to be able to flex them? You're not going to write them down with pieces of paper and send them to carrier digit, right? Like you need a, you need an integration to do that. And a lot of times what we find with the smaller merchants is that, you know, when you're that small, it's not that you don't have the problem. It's just the dollars and cents that are tied up in it aren't enough to move the needle. You've got bigger problems you need to solve. Like your product market fit and growing a team and marketing and things like that. But what we absolutely find is that what, once merchants get to a certain scale, you know, it's usually when they're doing a few hundred thousand dollars a month in processing, they inevitably start to turn around and say, okay, what's all this money that I'm losing out the back? This is ridiculous, right? It's an optimization and efficiency play. And I would argue that the earlier you are optimized and efficient, the more profitable you're going to be, the faster you're going to grow. Because there's all kinds of interesting things that happen when you're able to make more money. And I'm speaking from experience here. When I was a startup e-commerce company, when you're able to make more money than your competitors per customer that you acquire, all kinds of interesting things happen. First of all, you're able to spend more to acquire customers. 
you're able to attract customers that maybe before weren't profitable for you, but now because you've inked up just a little bit more profit per customer, you can, it opens up whole new cohorts of the economy that are now suddenly profitable for you to go after. Because you have better merchants, you're better able to invest into your product, into customer service, you're better able to reward your team. There's all, there's this whole virtuous cycle that comes out of this that ends up compounding and, and creating this sort of exponential effect. So the earlier you can take it on in your business, the earlier you can make it a priority to optimize around these things, optimizing lifetime value, the better off, the easier your business is going to end up being, uh, is the short answer. But definitely you don't have to convince the large merchants of this, right? But some of the merchants using our platform, $3.7 million a month in declines. We just have another one who like uh, launched with us last week, like $9 million a month in failed payments, right? Like these guys are super motivated to have the absolute best solution because every little 1% of better performance and recovering failed payments is going to really move the needle. For them. We've talked, you mentioned homegrown solutions. Uh, you mentioned some softwares that people can use for those types of things. If I was a merchant that I've started doing this and I'm using one of the many popular systems that are out there today. How do I find out whether or not I can work with FlexPay or is, is there a way for me to quickly and easily figure that out before picking up the phone and giving you all a call? Yeah, definitely just like contact your billing system provider, your CRM provider and ask them if they have an integration. On our website, flexpay.io, we have a list of all the current integrations that we have as well. So that can point you in the right direction of which platforms already support FlexPay. Like for example, we just completed a new integration into Chargeify, which I'm really excited about. They're a good partner of ours. So anybody who's on Chargeify can just, with a flip of a switch, they can turn on FlexPay and we go. And we're adding in more and more platforms all the time, making it as easy as possible for people to integrate with us. So yeah, I think that would probably be a good place to start and ask it. And again, I'm super passionate about this. And obviously in real business, and I want people to come in and use our tech. It really is the best at doing, at fixing this problem. But I hope that some of the things that we talked about on this podcast interview can also help, even if you're not using our tech, right? Take some of the low hanging ideas and, and build them into your logic, like retrying transactions during business, during business hours, early in the afternoon, East coast, trying them on Fridays and Saturdays, trying them on the first and the 15th, making sure you're in the right MCC, use a high quality merchant bank that has a really good reputation, generally speaking. With the, with the use a really good fraud system on the front end to make sure that the reputation of your transactions continues to be good as you're hitting scale. Make sure you're validating those data fields and clean out up the garbage because all those little things stack together to really start to put you in this, in this really great spot. And then when you want to take it to the nth degree and get into the ditches, well, you come use a tool at first. Great. Now you gave some great information that that those who are, are looking at do, am I doing enough for myself, by myself? You've given some great information for them to get started on their side. And then when they fine tune that and figure that out and they still feel like they have some for recovery, I, I, this is where they reach out to FlexPay and they really get, get to going and moving on that. Yeah. But look, even if you're not a merchant with a significant book of subscription, I just, I still find it fascinating to understand what's actually going on inside of our economy and why these problems exist in the first place and to try to do what we can to, to make it better. At the end of the day, trust and transparency goes a long way in solving a lot of the problems that are out there. And I'm super excited. You and I geeked out. We talked a lot about FlexPay and our problem. And it's true. Like I can go deep down that well, but there's plenty of other things that you and I have talked about in friendly chats about 
emerging technology and how it can really help to move things forward. I'm excited. I am very optimistic that things are going to get better in the near future and certainly in the long term, but it's going to be a bit of a rocky road between now and there. Where we're at right now for most merchants today in 2021, heading into 2022, it's not great. The failure rates on payments are higher than ever before. They seem to be getting worse. The stuff that we thought was going to really be a big help, like 3D Secure, is not helping at all. It's actually making things worse. And so we've got to really pull together and get the major stakeholders in the ecosystem to say, hey, enough is enough, but there is a better way. Let's sit down and try to make this a, a reality. And we're at the bleeding edge, the forefront of that, having the conversations with the key stakeholders and trying to make that happen. So whatever support we can get to rally to the cause and create more awareness is certainly always appreciated. Well, definitely, I, I, there's a rabbit hole that I want to go down with you, just not today. So mm -hmm. I will tease it right now. I, I really want to, at a later time, start to dive into the new entrants into the market that, and how they're impacting the overarching view of, of how we accept payments, how we buy things how it adjusts our behavior. And yes, I am talking about that fun thing called buy now, pay later and how it has, has transformed and how it is transforming the way that certain demographics look at leveraging payments. Mm -hmm. um, and that doesn't even include going over into the other fun stuff, which we start talking about the use of cryptocurrency and blockchains, and we could go crazy over to that stuff. But definitely the one that, that I would want to dive in and get your perspective on is, is really around the buy now, pay later and, and, and what you're seeing from your side of the house and how FlexPay might be able to actually help in some of those scenarios. Because I know most of them are using credit card yeah. as their primary payment method. Oh, yeah, that's, that's straight down the middle of the fairway for us. Because, look, at the end of the day, anything that's merchant-initiated is going to have a lot of these problems, right? So real-time customer-initiated transactions, like, hey, I just bought something on Amazon, I'm checking out, here's my credit card, boom. Yes, they still have really big problems with failed payments for sure, but it's significantly worse on the merchant-initiated transactions, which as soon as you go to the buy now, pay later, it has moved from a real-time customer-initiated transaction to a merchant-initiated transaction. Mm -hmm. but the good news is that's where we can really play, like with my tools and with some of the ideas that we talked about. There's lots of things that you can do, you're in pain, but you have more tools available to you to actually be able to fix the problem and ameliorate. But yeah, that's the buy now, pay later stuff. We're seeing a huge movement in that space. And we have tons of merchants in that space using our tool right now, getting like absolutely phenomenal results out of it. So I'm, I'm very excited and, and bullish on what we can do with that too. Yeah. And you brought up something that, that, that I geeked out about when it first started being released, at least in North America, which is really the distinction of a transaction being merchant initiated versus a consumer initiated mm -hmm. transaction and, and really how that adjusted the behavior. And you go even further into the behavior of the consumer. Now when the consumer realizes that they've authorized someone to initiate those transactions on their behalf, I think they've started to realize that means that you can't just turn off the card and walk away because you've gone a little bit further into it. So I'm going to leave that one as something we can come back to and dive a little bit deeper into the merchant initiated side of the house at a later date. Daryl, is there anything else that we want to talk about today before we say goodbye and, and head into a, a fantastic weekend? God, we covered a lot of 
stuff and in your right there's so many other topics every time you and i get together and have a conversation it's always fun i always enjoy them you've been a great friend and an ally and all the stuff that we're working on and i'm super excited about the little projects that we're spinning up together on the side so i know we're going to get have plenty of opportunities to continue the conversation in the future I guess the only other thing is that I am super passionate about this space. I am an angel investor. I'm an LP in some fintech funds, and I'm an angel investor in some crypto-based startups, mostly just so I can really have my finger more closely on the pulse of everything that's happening in that space. So anybody who's in that space, who's looking for help, looking for ideas, wants to really get out there and, and build some interesting solutions around it, know that my virtual door is always virtually open and I'm always interested in having more conversations around that space and whatever I can do to help out other founders, help out other fintechs in that space is something I'm really passionate about. And yeah, if you are a merchant and you are this pain, well, there's a really great solution out there to help to fix with the pain that you're in. And I'd be super happy to see what we could do to help out on that. I think we can probably leave it there for now, Ted. Wow, fantastic, Joe. And, and I, I have to just chime in. I'm like you, you are one of the most accessible fintech executives that, that I've had the opportunity to work with. And that's just not for myself. I hear that from a lot of others. And, and I, I want to say thank you for being that and, and let you know that we all appreciate that availability. And it, it's helped so many people move forward in their ventures. So I want to thank you again for that. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. Doing whatever we can to help out the ecosystem. And it really does take a village. So happy to do my share. Awesome. Thanks, Daryl. Be sure to subscribe to Fintech Confidential on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast player by going to podcast.fintechconfidential. Our show notes in each episode are available at www.fintechconfidential.com. And you can get Fintech Confidential information by signing up at access.fintechconfidential.com. If you want to be a guest on Fintech Confidential, submit your application at guest.fintechconfidential.com. Fintech Confidential, bringing you the people, tech, and companies that change how you pay and get paid.